0: Blog Talk Radio Let's get lost In a better
1: place Pick up a book, Travel through time
0: and space So much to learn So much to see A chance to escape Reality Open your mind Fresh new
1: sun and day next week will bring you there.
0: This is Book Talk with Fran Lewis brought to you by MJ Network, MJ in memory of my sister, Marcia Joyce. And we have award-winning author, Kelly Oliver, joining us today with her book, Covert in Cairo. Now, if you've ever, ever, ever wanted to meet Fiona Fig and Kelly Lane and you've met them in person, man, they are a trip and a half, and you don't want to mess with these girls. Following a tip from a notorious spy, Frederick Fredericks, who I love. Fiona Fig and Kitty Lane of the British intelligence find themselves in the hustle and bustle of Egypt, but ancient mummies aren't the only bodies buried in the tombs of Cairo. Welcome to MJ Network, and Covert in Cairo was interesting, so but give us the background of chaos in Carnegie walls and how you created these hilarious characters
1: Thanks, Fran. yeah, Fiona Fig, actually, I started Fiona Fig with Betrayal at Ravenswick. And then Mm. she had adventures in London, Paris, Vienna, before she was joined in New York in Chaos at Carnegie Hall by Kitty Lane. So she got a new Mm. sidekick, Kitty Lane, and now they are a kind of dynamic duo uh, that take on, of course, the German spies and bad guys of all kinds and their first adventure together was the the chaos at Carnegie Hall and then as you mentioned Covert in Cairo just came out uh April twenty fifth and that was their second adventure and they're gonna have many more,
0: hopefully. Oh, I'm s i am I so was glad because I played the piano in Carnegie Hall when I was a kid. Wow, impressive. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I was a concert pianist at a very young age of whatever. And I was my mother said, You will play there I go, Oh my God. <laughs> yeah, I played to play Tchaikovsky's Waltz of the Flowers by heart. All impressive. All 26,000 pages. Yeah, it was impressive. It was scary, too. Yeah, it. scary. So t- my other character I love is Captain Douglas. So tell us Fiona and Kenneth and give us the background about and Captain Douglas and why did he get she get settled with Kitty the first time? <laughs>
1: Yeah, so I love Captain Clifford Douglas, too. She, yeah. Fiona, Fiona met Captain Douglas on her very first mission in betrayal at Ravenswick, and their friendship has developed since then. And, yeah, uh, in some interesting ways, he mm-hmm. is uh, hes a very proper British gentleman who uh, is somewhat protective of Fiona, but also has a lot of respect for her. He is easily embarrassed, uh, and he was assigned to Fiona as a kind of chaperone as she went on these missions because, well, I should back up a little bit. Fiona was a file clerk at the war office, and only because there was a shortage of men because of the First World War And because the agent assigned to Frederick, Frederick's in the first Mm -hmm. mission, had an accident and broke his leg, anyway, through a series of circumstances, Fiona ends up posing as that British agent, and off she goes. So she's an amateur agent and Mm -hmm. introduced to the world of espionage, Uh, so a lot of hijinks and madcap adventures ensue as she puts on her disguises, and mm-hmm. Captain Clifford Douglas is often flabbergasted by what she says and and does
0: well she 's my kind of person because nobody likes what I say what I, what I say what I think, but I want the <laughs> disguises, although there are times when i well considering my hair's blonde with red, purple, blue, magenta, gold and pink, and pink highlights, yeah, you might say, I'm disguised, it's different, (laughs) it's different, yeah, so, yeah, I
1: love disguises, I I love that kind of trope of, uh, passing a someone you're not, and, uh, dressing up, it's fun,
0: well, she, she's cool, so tell us she's in Cairo, and Frederick Frederick, you know, he sort of lures her there, and says, Another one on the Suez Canal is the law that something's going to happen there. So how, how does she, what does she believe him? And then you got the hotels taken over by the soldiers. I felt like, oh, my God, how is she going to get a room?
1: <laughs> yeah, that's Seriously. Good. Yeah, yeah, well, it was true. I did a lot of research yeah, for this I know. book. And in the First World War, many of the grand hotels of Cairo, and they were at the time some of the fanciest, nicest hotels in the world, uh, where they were taken over by the British Army. And the Savoy Hotel was made the headquarters, actually, of the military, the British military in Cairo. And Cairo and Egypt in general became a very important uh, location during the First World War. So. Uh, yeah, there were still there were still rooms. It was it was interesting though doing the research that there wasn't a lot of tourism because of the war, mm-hmm. and a lot of well, actually for a time all of the archaeological digs had been put on hold because of the war. Uh, so in the time that I set this, which was December mm-hmm. Christmas time of mm-hmm. 1917, things were just starting to open up a bit, and some very few archaeologists were allowed to come back to their digs and as you can imagine these archaeologists were really itching to get back to their mm. projects that had been the, the government wouldn't let them in anymore so a lot of the plot revolves around uh, the antiquities trade and in fact I would say although the the sort of veneer of the whole series is you know World War I and the conflict between Britain and Germany and between the Allied forces and the uh, central powers, here in Cobert and Cairo, we see a different kind of more cultural war taking place over the antiquities of Egypt, where ancient Egypt is kind of the spoils of war. And this, again, is based on my research, where the British, the French, the Germans, the Americans were all trying to get a hold of these precious ancient Mm -hmm. treasures, and cart them off to either their private collections or to museums. And there, unfortunately, were not a lot of regulations at this time, and a lot of these antiquities were taken illegally from the country. And even ones that were taken legally were, in a sense, just ripped out of their historical context and taken to, the Metropolitan Museum in New York or the British mm. Museum in London. And one thing I found really fascinating is that the movement right now, so making this a very contemporary, to repatriate and reclaim the antiquities that were taken illegally, uh, first and foremost, and bring them back to their rightful heritage in Egypt. So, yeah, last year a whole bunch, I don't know, 23 or something like that, artifacts were returned from the Met, and also the British Museum. There's a lot of pressure, both for antiquities that were taken illegally, but also even ones that at the time were taken legally uh, to be returned to Egypt.
0: I, I saw that on the news, actually. they did it up on Channel 12. And besides the fact that archaeology was one of my favorite subjects when I was taking my first degree, in, at Hunter College And they, uh, the science, I loved it And they actually let us go out on digs and stuff like that too That was the fun. most fun yeah. oh, it, was, it was great Because yeah, there were some places nearby Like the Cloisters and Wave Hill And some of them And they actually had actual people that came there So we could do the digs So I actually learned And I took earth science in high school but That was easy I, I love that stuff So this this was like fascinating So we have Jean the Baptist Lorraine, what is his connection to Kitty? I felt so bad. And why were they invited to the ball? And what happened? They started to quarrel there were go, oh my God, this is supposed to be a very famous red ball. And I'm saying like, oh my God, what are they doing? Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. Um, well, Kitty Lane is the... Boss, I guess Captain Blinker Hall, Reginald Hall, is the, his nickname is Blinker because his eyelashes fluttered. But he's in charge of the War Office, and he is a real character and based on a real character who was in charge mm-hmm. of the War Office. But Kitty is a completely fictitious character, and she is his niece, quote unquote. Although mm-hmm. as a, she's a bit of a mystery, so I don't want to reveal too much a better character, because it unfolds as the series unfolds, but uh, yeah, I guess by now, by covert in Cairo, we already know that she is a, a specially trained British agent, and Captain Hall, the head of the war office, was actually good friends with the military personnel who were stationed in Cairo, and at the time, also, their wives were there and their families were there with them, because they were stationed there, and well, especially before the war, these really luxurious hotels were also known for their balls and gala events and happenings every weekend. There were Shepherd's mm-hmm. Hotel, Savoy were places to see and be seen. And some of the balls continued, I mean not that many during the war, but I'm you know, in my fiction this is a very special occasion and a charity event. So uh, it It makes sense, hopefully, in the story that mm-hmm. Kitty and Fiona are invited because they 're being they 're being hosted in Cairo by uh, the general General Clayton and his wife Enid, who uh are throwing the ball and Jean Baptiste Lorraine is a French archaeologist who has been given the actually one of the most famous German archaeologists of the time, Bochart, mm-hmm. Uh, His concession, and this is also, again, loosely based on facts, but the fact was that the Germans, because they were the belligerents and the British had colonized Egypt, so they controlled the government and uh, the dig sites and the concessions. They were booted out of Egypt, and their concessions were turned over to the Allies, like the French, the British, mm-hmm. the Americans. So Jean-Baptiste Lorraine is a fictional character, but it's true that the con- German concessions were taken away from the arche- the archaeologists who, you know, they were scientists and uh, Egyptologists and not necessarily part of the military operations
0: mm. uh,
1: in in Egypt. So... As you find out, the plot is also revolves around really the jealousy and resentment of the German archaeologists who had to give up their concession and possibly not only great treasures but fame and their position and you know their standing in the world of archaeology. So, yeah, Jean Baptiste Lorraine is a kind of cheeky, arrogant, uh, flirtatious, young strapping, handsome uh, archaeologist French, very charming and he seemingly, well he's kind of interested in all the women but he he begins to flirt with Kitty and then Mm -hmm. I guess another of the mysteries, we don't know whether Kitty is flirting back or whether she is just undercover as a flirt uh, trying to get information out of Jean-Baptiste Lorraine and then yes he, we, we know what fate he meets, but maybe we
0: shouldn't go too far into that. For
1: no, people, we don't want, it, we don't want everybody read, to know. <laughs>
0: have not read this book yet. Today, well, they are going to read this, trust me. You know, it's funny because I go into the bakery or go somewhere and they'll say, what are you reading? And I'll say, would you like the list? i will hand you a list. <laughs> this is what you need to read. <laughs> I'm, impo- I'm impossible. I mean, if, when I call anywhere, I go like, wait a second, I just got off the air with this person. You may want to read this. And and I've just got, I'm honored. On September 20th, Tess Gerrinson is doing her new book with me first. Oh, that's so exciting. Oh, my gosh. Yes. I saw it on uh, Facebook, and I emailed her, and she said, it's in the mail, you're going to get it, and September 20th is good for my interview. You're going to get the only first one, because she's going to be traveling when the book comes out. And I go, Yay.
1: Yeah, so exciting. Wow, well, I'm honored to be in such amazing company on your show. I'm,
0: I'm amazed, too, that I do this. She was the very first author I ever interviewed. I was brave to email her to even ask her. She didn't have heard of me. And now they all hear of me. I don't know why. <laughs> so I've, I've got because you're a great supporter.
1: Or you're a great supporter of, of mystery I, books. I love
0: doing this. I love yeah. doing this. And, I, you know, what can I say? I try. So we've got another two characters. This was really funny because, you know, people misconstrue when they see two people talking to each other, and they automatically say, "Uh uh-oh, I don't like that. So Lady Evelyn and Captain Carter, and Fiona misconstrue something about them. Yes. Yes,
1: yeah. uh, Well, so Howard Carter... Yes, was a real person, a very famous archaeologist who discovered Tutankhamun's or King Tut's tomb. That discovery was made after this novel takes place, but only a couple of years after. And so at this point, he's not a famous, well, actually, he's more famous for his temper than he is for his discoveries at this point. But he, his patron is Lord Carnarvon, a British wealthy lord who supports uh, Archaeology and is interested, kind of amateur Egyptologist who mm-hmm. often visited Cairo and visited Egypt and worked closely with Howard Carter, who he hired. And at this time in 1917, uh, Howard, Car- or, um, sorry, Lord Carnarvon would bring sometimes his his wife, but also his daughter, who was I think around 19 at this time, uh, and kind of, I don't know, strangely, there it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, Carter was in his early 40s at this time, but there was speculation a little bit later when Evelyn uh, Carnarvon, Lady Evelyn, was in her 20s that there was some kind of an affair going on between Howard Carter and Lady Evelyn Carnarvon. And you see this, I mean, even in some of the history channels shows and you know it's it makes for good sales and scandals but a lot of people close to them including Lady Evelyn Carnarvon herself deny it as completely ridiculous so I kind of play with that um, and they're they are keeping a secret but that is not the secret so uh, that's I guess one of the red herrings of my plot what secret they're keeping. And, you know, we find out as the novel goes on. But it does make them look very suspicious in the beginning because, like Mm. many characters in novels, they have secrets.
0: Well, I'll tell you, it was really interesting because I said, oh, wow, this is going to be good. (laughs) So this part really cracked me up. Okay. Now the archaeologists, and they go to the dig, and... If you've ever ridden on a camel, which I did a long time ago, because my nephew made me go on a camel in the bunk Zoo, and I said I must have been out of my mind. You don't want to do it, but it was interesting. So you're riding on camels. You go into the zoo, and they meet for go, and they're waiting for for Jean. And what happens? Uh, yeah,
1: they. So a lot. I guess the humor. Some of yeah. the humor. It involves hilarious. The, fact, the fact that Fiona also is a kind of prim and proper lady, mm-hmm. or she at least considers herself one. And she is also very much an urbanite, a Londoner, who doesn't like mosquitoes and dirt and Me nature. Too. <laughs> right, so so here she is, right, in the desert and has to ride donkeys and camels, and she's a bit appalled by these creatures. She also is not much of an animal person, although that, that kind of changes it during the series. That's a, a bit of a tension between her and Kitty, who, and also Clifford. Kitty and Clifford very much are animal people. Clifford has been a world traveler, so he has been to these places before. He's... Familiar with riding camels, and Kitty is just a very physical character who can do anything uh physical, whereas Fiona is more uh, intelligent well Kitty is also intelligent, but she 's more mental i guess she she 's more uncoordinated, so part of the humor is is Fiona trying to do things like ride a camel, or in the book that 's coming out in August, skiing in The Italian Alps and things she's never done before, and she's not very coordinated, so she is falling off and in the cow on the camel. She's ripping her skirts and getting dirty (laughs) and and doesn't like the smells and yeah, so it's fun. Well,
0: all I know is that I got on top of the camel. I weigh 103, 104 pounds. I weighed a lot more back then, and the poor guy that ran the camel ride had a Stick my butt, and up, kept pushing me on it so I wouldn't fall off the camel. <laughs> and they were like, there's, yeah. "And there's more than one cam, more than one person on the camel. Not just you. There's a whole <laughs> bunch of people on the same camel. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah, trust me. It was an experience. It was funny because they took pictures, and you know, I i 'I'll kill you. This is crazy.' <laughs> so, now we find out what happens to Jean and Fiona. Immediately reacts, what does she do with the scene, and then Kitty does something which is important.
1: Yeah, this is another, something, as I said, Kitty's a bit of a mystery. When we first meet her in chaos at Carnegie Hall, we just think that she is Captain Hull's niece, and that Fiona's been yeah. assigned to babysit her and deliver her to school in New York, and she's kind of a girly teenager who's into dresses and fashion and reads the fashion magazine and flirts with all the young men and kind of silly. But, uh, spoiler alert, uh, she turns out, as I said, to be a highly trained British operative. And she claims that she went to boarding school in France. And as the series progresses, we find out that this boarding school was really Kind of a spy school, where mm-hmm. she learned uh, foot fighting, which uh, is kind of like a karate. She so she learned martial arts. She learned forensics. So whereas Kitty is an amateur, but she does have a photographic memory. So and she's very clever. You know, she's very she and she's an avid reader of mysteries and Sherlock Holmes. So she, as an amateur, is very good at deductive reasoning and putting clues together and deciphering codes. She worked in the room 40 with the code breakers, even though she was just delivering their tea, she ends up helping them break codes, whereas Kitty is an expert in, as I said, more physical, the physical evidence, uh, the evidence at the scene, so she's always surprising Fiona with her forensic tests, and that's also mm-hmm. fun for me because I do research on what kinds of forensics. It was kind of mm-hmm. the birth of forensic science in the beginning of the 20th century, so forensic science was a relatively new science of just a couple of decades old, old at this point, so, you know, they didn't have all the modern kinds of, obviously, DNA tests and fancy forensic tests, but they did have interesting tests that they could do on different fibers and fingerprints, and uh, they had tests they could do on already on firearms to see if it had been fired or someone's hands to see if it had the residue from the gunpowder and that sort of thing. So Kitty is up on all of those tests and constantly surprising Fiona and their reader with the kinds of... Well forensic tests that she's able to perform. So they, they complement each other, I hope, mm-hmm. at the crime scene or the when they find the dead body. They're looking for very different kinds of things, and Kitty is collecting physical evidence. And again, Fiona misinterprets, like you say, what she's doing because she doesn't mm. know yet that Kitty is up on all these forensics. She, at that moment, thinks that... Kitty is just kind of collecting keepsakes from this man that she was flirting with the night before, so yeah, it's again it hopefully it's interesting to learn about the forensic techniques of the day and provides a little more drama and tension to the story with these very different characters working together, Kitty and Fiona.
0: Well, she uses, I'm going to skip some of these questions and go to this one, because this was a, this is an important one. She uses a microscope, and she yes. finds certain things there. So I'm going to skip the ones over there and come back there to the, in a minute. My favorite thing in, in high school was going under a microscope to see what was there. It was fun. And, you know, yeah. and you, you take all sorts of things that you don't want to know, you know, creams, and, and you put, your, put it on your finger, stick your finger under the microscope, and you go like, oh, my God, is that me? That's the most (laughs) fun. So she used the microscope because they didn't expect her to, and then they they talk about Kitty and Captain Douglas and the police come, and they question all of them. But this thing with the microscope surprised Kitty, surprised Fiona, didn't she? And she was able to come up with something.
1: Right. Yeah, yeah, right. Kitty again has this whole has these forensics kits on hands in her suitcase, including the microscope, and she here is looking at carpet fibers and discovering things about the location of where yeah. our victim was actually killed and discovers that the body was moved uh, and she discovers that by comparing doing various tests, including looking at the fibers under the microscope. And introducing Fiona to that, as you say, fascinating world of microscopic uh, ecology, I guess, where you look into the the descriptions of what they're seeing when they look into the microscope at these hairs and fibers and such uh, in this minuscule world unseen to the naked eye and yet so important especially to the science of forensics, obviously.
0: So it was yeah, that,
1: that's a theme. Yeah, I was just gonna say that's a theme that continues through the series. I'm just now finishing, I guess, two books later. So Mayhem in the Mountains will be out in August and I'm just finishing writing Arsenic at Ascot, uh, which will go into production probably in the next week or two. So that the forensic theme is the theme that's developed and becomes mm. really important to Fiona and Kitty solving the mysteries through the use of Kitty's scientific methods along with Fiona's more deductive methods.
0: Well, the writing in this is really unique. It's different. And it's very hard to put humor in a murder. But- <laughs> No, seriously. Yeah. But every time she gets dressed up for the for something, I go, like, I wouldn't wear that, but that is really cool. And some of the gowns and stuff are great. So she she receives a message, Kitty. Now I mean Fiona. And then they prepare at the ball. And then she looks at Kitty and Jean, and what do they glare at them? Uh,
1: well, again, Fiona doesn't know Kitty very well. This is just their...
0: Second yeah
1: mission together, and at the end of their first mission, Kitty uh tied fiona up in a bathroom so uh, yeah it no, doesn't doesn't trust completely trust Kitty yet, so she's not sure what Kitty is up to is she uh just a silly girl is she have a higher clearance and on a totally different mission? Uh, is she just undercover and her behavior is just a ruse? So Fiona really doesn't know. And so Fiona and the reader are both trying to figure out what's happening. So as I said, Kitty is part of the mystery at this point. And as the series continues, we get to know Kitty better to the point where late in the series, Kitty is going to take a more prominent role and we'll finally learn more about her background and how where she came from and you know her story which we don't quite know yet
0: well that's good because we have to meet the guy that i love i don't know how you created and wrote this guy frederick fredericks is the greatest character and he is so sneaky and so and he's in love with fiona we know yeah. that we didn't get to archie yet i you know and how does he he gets in And he gets out, and in the first book, he gets to escape from jail, and nobody stops him. I mean, it's like, yeah, this is really cool. So how did did you create him, and how did he get involved with her? Because just when you think she's going to get in trouble, he shows up out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yes.
1: Yeah, Frederick Fredericks, I love Frederick Fredericks, too. He's one of my favorite characters. He's actually based on a real person named Frederick Duquesne who was a spy, who was a South African huntsman, who hunted with Teddy Roosevelt and Mm. worked in a newspaper in New York and posed as a British Army officer and did all kinds of things. And some of them are featured in the novels, where he is He's very charming and was some, somehow managed just through his sheer personality mm-hmm. to fool all of these people like hiding yeah. in plain sight. You know, he, he wasn't a spy that hides in the shadows. He was someone who was out there and just charming people, so they believed he was who he said he was, whether he was pretending to be a journalist or pretending to be a British uh, officer and he so he had various aliases and he really did in real life escape from jail several times he and actually he was a spy in the second world war as well so he he was never caught I mean he was caught many times but he always escaped so he's a really interesting interesting character in real life and such a flamboyant character in real life that he makes for a great fictional character i think because of that because i mean he really so for example in the second fiona fig uh... high treason at the grand hotel which takes place in paris frederick dresses like frederick fakes paralysis and Mm -hmm. then he's he's caught he's in prison he fakes paralysis from an accident And doctors stick pins in him and everything, but he doesn't flinch. And then he ends up escaping by dressing as a woman, taking one of the nuns' outfits and escapes. And that's based on a true story where, not in Paris, but where the character, the real person, Frederick Duquesne, For two years, fake paralysis, and everyone believed that he was paralyzed from the waist down and couldn't walk, so obviously they weren't that worried about him escaping, and then he did manage to steal women's clothes and escape, (laughs) but he just bided his time for two years, pretending that he was paralyzed. So, uh, in the novel, it's not two years, it's more like two weeks, but still, there's so much uh, real stuff to mine for the Frederick Fredericks character. And it's been interesting to me because you you mentioned Archie, so Lieutenant Archie Summersby was the love interest early on for Fiona. And as the series went on, readers totally fell in love with Fredericks. And he's the bad guy. He's Fiona's nemesis. And I was like, wow. So I really played that up as the series goes on. And there is a bit of a, a love triangle. I guess I should say, Mm -hmm. and I probably should have said this from the beginning, I'm very much influenced by Elizabeth Peter's Amelia Peabody series, where you have Amelia Peabody, and she has an ongoing nemesis that shows up almost in every novel, the master criminal, Sethos, and he is a mystery that as the series progresses, you get to know more about him. So what I've tried to do with more or less success, is each book has a mystery that's solved within a greater kind of espionage plot that is partially solved, but Fredericks is a recurring nemesis for Fiona. So like the Amelia Peabody series, you've got also a recurring bad guy. So the fun part is I get to develop him. I get to develop the relationship between Fredericks and Fiona And there's a lot of fun, I hope, witty banter between them because, of course, he's very, very charming. Uh, And Fiona has certain kind of attractions to him, but he's the enemy, so she really can't allow herself to have these feelings. So, again, as the series goes on, she's fighting her feelings for him, and he's becoming bolder and bolder in his feelings for her and uh hopefully that's fun for the reader and then of course we have archie that fiona thinks she's in love with but she's beginning to wonder <laughs> now i'm getting ahead of myself <laughs> i shouldn't give that I away i love <laughs> archie
0: but this, this yes. is the other character that i felt so bad and i don't know how come you named him after a, a, a spice or go to garnish or whatever <laughs> i was mean, like what Nobody names anybody Ancient Relish. So Agent oh, Relish.
1: Oh, oh, the agent.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's agent his... Relish contacts her, right, and she's yeah. told that she has to find him and meet him because he has something to tell her. And when she finds him, she finds somebody else there, too. And it's like, yes. oh, my God, poor Fiona. She can't win. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, Fiona,
1: I pile it on for poor Fiona, but somehow she manages always to get out of her troubles either by herself or with help from Kitty or Archie or even Fredericks, right? So, yeah, it's fun for me to develop those different relationships Mm. and different ways that these characters see Fiona. So they have very different perspectives on Mm -hmm. fiona's capabilities and for me i get to i get to develop i think different aspects and how people perceive fiona and hopefully well i don't know maybe it's very subtle but hopefully the reader gets a sense of which of these men uh... really has a true respect for fiona as a person um... Yeah, it's – I don't know. I don't know what will happen in, on the romantic plane with Fiona because I was actually rooting for Clifford, Clifford Douglas, but my readers yeah, are
0: rooting for he's,
1: Fredri- he's, Fredericks or Archie, so I'm like mm. – He's too
0: staunch now. Nah, he's no fun for her. Yeah,
1: he's too boring, right? He's too mm. reliable.
0: Yeah, but, you know, we'll see. But before I forget, believe it or not, I've got a third one tomorrow. At 12. I've got a panel of five authors, and we're going to talk about something very interesting. I did a panel with my reading professor. We talked about questioning skills for students grade K to 12, because I'm a reading specialist and writing specialist. So we're going to talk about questions that people ask, questions that authors ask when they do interviews, and what questions would you like to be asked but you're not, and a whole lot more. On the 16th, Alan Zendransky will be here on Incident at San Miguel, on the 17th, none other than David Putnam with his new Moonlight series. On the 18th, at 12, former FBI agent Mark Boulton. Does Your Guy Lie. On the 22nd, someone we all love and adore, culture, D.P. Lyle. On the 24th, another fantastic new author, Dead Drop, M.P. Woodward. And on the 25th, this is my other, like, I'm so excited, on the 25th, the bride war White, Dana Ann Krantz Amanda Quick takes the stage at 12 on the 25th. And on the last day, uh, the author of Thunder Road, which I read yesterday, um, was a surprise. It's really great. And that's just May, which you hear about June. It gets better. So I have a ton more questions here. We'll see if this we can sounds combine great. them. She goes to the hospital to find Agent Relish. She'll, we won't say what, what Agent Relish, what happens. She plays nurse, and she's, she's there, and people get hurt. So what happens that nobody's watching poor Agent Relish? I love Agent Relish. I felt so bad for him.
1: <laughs> yeah. Seriously. That was a bit of an inside joke, actually, with my editor, the name. but oh, really? Yes, we won't <laughs> go into that. Um, no. Yeah, so Fiona, actually, throughout the series, Fiona has been volunteering When she's in London at Charing Cross Hospital as a nurse, Mm -hmm. like so many women did in the First World War, a lot of the nurses were volunteer nurses, and Fiona, too, feeling her patriotic duty and wanting to help volunteers, and so she has experience at Charing Cross Hospital. In fact, that's how she meets Lieutenant, the handsome fly boy, Lieutenant Archie Summersby, who... Had been wounded on a mission, and Fiona helped sort of nurse him back to health and He also helped her through a very difficult time when her husband dies of mustard gas poisoning in her arms in the Chrenkov mm-hmm. hospital so yeah, she really has had experience as a nurse, and she does mm-hmm. she 's not just faking you know here in Cairo she is brought to the the hospital with the with agent relish, that is his code name, but anyway he the British agent who has been uh, injured and rushed, thanks to Fiona, who found him uh, to the hospital and so it 's only natural that Fiona would join in because they have casualties mm. all over the place. they are understaffed, and they just get an influx from a fresh battle, and so she just jumps in and pitches in right away. And of course, as we might imagine, there's just one emergency after another as dozens of injured mm. men are brought in. So it's very hard for people to watch closely every patient. They're just run- these nurses are just running off their feet. They're hardly the, the doctors are. Scarce again because a lot of the Mm -hmm. men, including doctors, are at the front. They're fighting at the front. They're treating men at the front. So a lot of the hospital duties are left. Like like a lot of the duties at this time are left to women. I guess that's one thing that attracts me to this time period, and that I find really interesting is that well, the men are off fighting. The women have to step up and take positions that had traditionally. Been reserved for men. So this is really a pivotal moment in women's rights, I guess, and the way that women are perceived as not just homemakers or mothers or wives but capable Mm. of moving into the workforce, of working at munitions factories, of running the bakeries and running the green grocers and doing the duties of doctors. So, yeah, everyone's just running around. It's kind of chaos because of all these wounded soldiers. And so exactly what happens to the British agent, the wounded British agent, becomes a mystery that has to be solved. Uh, Right. Is it foul play? Was it an accident? Fiona is directly Mm -hmm. involved. And so that becomes an important part of the plot for Fiona. Fiona grappling with what happened, what did she cause an accident uh what if she did, and how does she live with that, and what's she gonna do? you know what's she gonna do going forward so anyway it it all resolves with some help uh but
0: we won't give that away. no, but there's one other important component. Yeah. Uh, I have these millions of questions But before I <laughs> end after, I have to ask this question We can't forget that the link is The Romeo and Juliet shows And, ah, and what happened at the show I See I told you I read the book A <laughs> couple of times <laughs> And I forgot we that. have Sylvain We have the actress that plays And this was unique I was like she's a what? And she's dressed as a who? I was like oh my god this was this was outrageous. So tell us about the codes of Romeo and Juliet, and how come the characters were not exactly what you think, or just the way you think.
1: Yeah. Well, again, this uh, actress Maury was based on a real yeah. character, a very famous Egyptian actress, who played a lot of men's parts, dressed,
0: mm-hmm. including
1: Romeo. There's a there's a performance, yeah. Yeah, and she also owned the theater. So she was very unique. I mean at this time, not just in Egypt, but anywhere in the world, uh, uh women were not huge property owners like owning a theater and running a theater. But she did and she was an actress and as I said she performed many parts, many of the male parts. So she did male parts, female parts, very versatile actress. She also was a nationalist who was fighting against British occupation, so that becomes an important theme in the novel as well, and we find out that in her performances, in a very Mm -hmm. clever kind of way, she's delivering secret code to the Germans. Now, that part I made up, so she was a nationalist and wanted the British out, but there is no historical reason to believe she actually was working for the Germans or a German spy. She didn't go that far. But in my novel, my actress does go that far. And so Fiona, it takes Fiona a while in attending a couple mm-hmm. of performances to catch on yeah. to what exactly is happening. What it's, what's the code? How to crack the code? And that's something that Fiona is very good at is, again, that kind of deductive reasoning, cracking the code, seeing patterns. And, yeah, so it's interesting. Also, it turns out that the actress is giving information and receiving information sewn into the hems of the costumes and silk garments. And this is also based on a real uh, operation
0: the silk
1: letter silk letter plot it was called which was a way that operatives in india actually were getting information back and forth to egypt in again trying to the, the british colonies trying to overthrow their british oppressors and so one way of moving codes was to sew them into the hems of garments. So I find that also really interesting, too, about this time period is the way that women, uh, women's textiles and fabrics mm.
0: uh,
1: become so important as part, parts of espionage plots. So, for example, also women knitting. in In Britain, women were, you know, they knitted sweaters and scarves and mm-hmm. hats and such to send to the men at the front to keep them warm. But they started using their knitting to deliver codes, too. So they would have certain knitting operations, and you'd have to break the code of the, I don't know the knitting lingo, but like purl and drop and whatever. Mm-hmm. The stitches you know, would have certain meaning and the colors and so on. And they would use knitting to deliver from France back to England and back and forth. Uh, information about the movement of the German troops or information that they were gathering. So that's so interesting to me, the way that, you know, so-called women's work or women's realm of knitting and sewing was also really important to espionage in the First World War.
0: Well, they don't need, you know, women's rights over here. They they got them themselves. So. One one question, long one. Fiona breaks into something, and then Frederick. No matter what happens, no matter what she does, he's there. He's always there, no matter what. And he he interrupts everything. So how does she deal with it? And if she's she's looking for for Archie. She wants to do this, and then he's about to say something to her, and Kitty interrupts. And I was like, what? I could almost <laughs> bet what he was going to ask, and uh-huh. I said, "She's," I said, she, "She's not going to let this happen in this book because that would like kill it, but Frederick, yep, and anybody else that's that's after her." <laughs> so I was like, "What poor Archie?" And then he disappears. That's so sad. <laughs> well, the
1: good news is the series continues, so you'll get that that question you were wanting that was hanging on Archie's lips. Yes, just read the next in the series coming out in August, I will, and you will be satisfied that the question gets asked. So, uh, yeah, so that was hopefully to create the romantic tension, obviously, and the suspense. It is, as an author now speaking, as an author more than mm-hmm. a reader. Uh, it is tricky to write a series that includes a subplot romance and keep that romantic tension going because, I mean, you can, like in the Amelia Peabody series, she marries the guy, uh, Radcliffe Emerson, the greatest Egyptologist of this or any other century, as she says. She marries him at the end of the first book. But Elizabeth Peters didn't plan on making it a series, so if she had, she probably would have extended that romantic tension, which she does Mm -hmm. later with the character of Ramses and Nefret. They have a romance that spans, you know, a tense romance, kind of never completely admitting their feelings to each other, or even themselves, for, you know, three or four novels. So, it is a little bit tricky to keep that suspense going, and... It is evolving, like relationships do. You know, they do evolve, and things happen. And, and Fiona, one thing I like about write, writing Fiona is that she doesn't. She's not the most self-aware character. She's yeah. more aware of other people, but she is a lot in denial about her own feelings. Uh, it's what literary writers call dramatic irony, where the reader knows more than the character. So I hope, it's also a difficult thing to write, but my aim is to use dramatic irony so that the reader knows what Fiona really is thinking, even though she doesn't know it herself. So she'll do things, you know, she'll say things like, oh, I must have dust in my eyes, you know, because she has tears, but the reader knows it's not the dust, it's a sentiment that she has feelings that she's trying to deny. So that's something that throughout the series Fiona has to come to terms with is how does she really feel about these men? How does she really feel about Kitty? How does she feel about her own successes or failures as a British agent? How does she feel about, I mean, her husband left her for another woman and then got killed. So how she has a lot of uh... emotions to process and that it's not really her forte so the reader gets to see her trying to process these things without really being able to fully admit to herself the depth of her feeling and she has to come to terms with these, the heart the issues of the heart she's much better with issues of the head and it's a struggle for her between her heart and her head what she knows she should do, and what her passions tell her. So she's not exactly in touch with her passions. And that's something that I develop again, through the series. So as she becomes more self-aware, as it becomes just undeniable, you know, it just becomes obvious how she feels. She can't deny it anymore. Um, I hope that's enjoyable for the reader. It's fun for me to write.
0: What's enjoyable is that I've read how many books in a series? You'd be amazed. And <laughs> yeah. there are some publishers that prefer that you write the character, use the same character, and just give the person the same personality but a different plot. And yeah. And then I'm saying, like, I can take a snooze so I could tell you what's going to happen in the book. With Fiona, the way you write is that she changes every time. And then you changed up on Kitty. So it made yeah. the writing and the reader would want to say, Oh God, what is she gonna do next? And is she gonna fall for Frederick? Is she gonna fall for Archie? I mean seriously, because if you made it where she was pick one right away, that would say, oh, Like so what? And yeah. then it, yeah, it would be like so what? It, I love yeah. Frederick. He's a trip and a half, and he's enough to make her life more miserable than ever. So <laughs> which is it? Yeah, so how does this link? Fiona's going to be in the next one. And you put, for those of you that didn't read this one, there's an excerpt from the next one in the back. Ha-ha. Yep. I know. I saw that. <laughs> and I'm not reading it because I want to read the book. Are you going to be doing another uh, tour with Partners in Crime?
1: Um, I am probably, yeah, I'm not sure, but probably I I will be. As I said, the next Mayhem in the Mountain comes out in August. So Mm -hmm. I'm having actually a meeting with the – they're published by Boldwood Books, the Kitty and Fiona, and the first three are published by Level Best Books. I love them Mm -hmm. both. Great, great publishers to work with, both of them. But I have a meeting next week, I think, with Boldwood about the marketing for uh, the Mm -hmm. upcoming one. So I'm not sure what the marketing plan will be, but – yeah, hopefully it will involve another blog tour, which is a lot of fun.
0: Otherwise, just email me and send me the book. Because sure. otherwise, Fiona's not going to be happy if I don't read
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. we got to keep Fiona happy, and we have to keep Fran happy. That's right. Very
0: important. This is very true, because otherwise I'm going to get Frederick after everybody, and you know he'll do whatever <laughs> I say. <laughs> so,
1: okay, I didn't what? know you had special pull with Frederick But I'll keep that in mind in future I,
0: I do now because, you know, I did write a, when, when you see your review, you'll understand why Seriously <laughs> It took me, you know, I got a fit this morning Because I'm saying, I've got to post her review And it disappeared on my phone And then Come I went on. on my computer And I would say, if you don't, if I'm going to I was having a fit My computer has a habit Of making things disappear There so, was well, okay I found it So I will publish My hundred stars later So where can everybody Get the whole series And where can we find out More about you When you work And everybody August, look for it Murder yeah. and Mayhem, You want to get You want to read it
1: So you can find the books Wherever books are sold online You can request it From your local library If it doesn't already have it Some of them do or obviously, you know, we're at bookstore, request it from your local bookstore, but Barnes & Noble, Amazon, uh, Indie Books, Books a Million, like just everywhere. So it's, it should be easy to find. Just search on your favorite platform, Fiona Fig, or Fiona Fig Mystery, and you should find them all. They are available in all formats, audio, some of them are available in large print, Paperback, hardback, even the more recent ones available in CD if you prefer, MP3 file, CD. Anyway, all formats available. And if you want to know more about me, you can just Mm. go to kellyoliverbooks, that's K-E-L-L-Y, kellyoliverbooks, all one word, dot com. So that's my website. And if you sign up for my newsletter on my website, you get for free the first in my contemporary sus- suspense series, the Jessica James Mysteries. There are seven seven of those out now, and Jessica is also a hoot. So if you like fast-paced and funny mysteries with a lot of suspense, page-turners, with some laugh-out-loud moments, yeah, you can get a free book if you go to kellyoliverbooks.com. And my newsletter is full of cute cat pictures, but also short stories and lots of freebies i've given away audio books and had contests and i love to give stuff to readers because to me the most important thing is reaching people and that's writing and reaching people is more important than selling books by far
0: well, the so, more people that read it, I agree with you because, like, I go into the bank and I bring my copies of my accusation and I go here. Even if you don't want it, you love me. You want me to deposit here? Take a book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, I didn't ever realize it. Robert Dugoni, who's very popular, told me that yes. when, you go out, when you go out to um, an airport or you go to the bakery or you go to anywhere, always carry a couple of copies of your book and throw in that you're an author and say, here, would you like to read it? He said you'd be amazed at how happy, you know, people are. So when I went into the pharmacy, there were five people working there, and they all got copies of the book, for real. Nice. Even though, nice. and I said, even if you, and they read it, and I said, even if you don't want it, you're getting it anyway, otherwise, I won't get my prescription bill. Yeah. It was hilarious. <laughs> and then I, they, they, it was really funny because the pharmacist here called the one somewhere else, and she called back and she said, tell her to get here with more. So I did. <laughs> That's great. And you, That's you, great. You just never know. You're know, the, the right. The reading the public is the only way you're going to get out there because all this marketing stuff works to a point. So everyone. Get a copy of all of her books, because I'm telling you, you won't be disappointed. You learn. I learned a lot about Egypt that I didn't know in 1917. 1917, World War uh, World War One was my grandparents came over here somehow in the underground. So it's a very very volatile time period. Everybody, Kelly, thank you so much. Everybody, thank have you. a great day and stay safe and bye.
1: Thanks, Fran.